Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance fights for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website, which will be linked in the show notes below. I can tell you they are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out and sign up for their newsletter. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I'm your aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, the diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. So grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. Uh, this morning, yeah, I'm recording in the morning again. Actually, it's, it's actually around lunchtime uh, when I'm recording this one. Anyway, uh, what I got today is I've got uh, I've got my nice dark roast. That's what we're rolling with. Mmm. Tasty. All right. So a little bit of housekeeping up front. First off, um, as I mentioned before, I want to do another Q&A episode, uh, preferably sometime in May. So if you have questions uh, that you want to send in, things you want to say, uh, that you want me to address or whatever, please feel free to send those in. My email is Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N dot Driscoll, D-R-I-S-K-E-L-L at O-G-G-N dot com. Also, speaking of emails, I received one from um, uh, Ludwig, I, I, if I'm saying that correctly, and if I'm not, I apologize, uh, who emailed me, um, was from Europe, I think Dutch. Um, anyway, thank you so much for reaching out. I'll be keeping a couple of those questions in the bag for the Q&A episode, but uh, definitely, definitely appreciated your comments and um, your insight. That was very nice. Also, uh, so, so a little bit of backstory here. So I'm contracted with OGGN to produce 52 units of content per year, um, at least. And this past week, my day job was incredibly demanding. We had a lot of stuff going on. I was traveling and all that sort of stuff. And so I was really worried about what I was going to do a show on this week. And um, yeah, you know, what was I going to find? So I looked in the news and I thought, man, what can I, what can I stretch into a podcast episode? What do we have here? Well, Fortunately for, fortunately for me, and unfortunately for those actually involved, um, civil war seems to have broken out in the Sudan. And since China is uh, one of the largest importers of Sudanese oil in the world, it was kind of a windfall for me and from a show standpoint. So, Sudan, I am very sorry for the violence you guys are experiencing, but, uh, you know, that being said, certainly came in clutch. So... All joking aside, let's actually talk about Sedan today. Uh, and I'm not talking about a four-door passenger car. We're talking about the country 
in East Africa. So you guys know the routine when I do one of these. We're going to talk about the history, the context of how it got there, and kind of what's happening at present and what we think the impacts might be. Now, uh, the Sudan has gotten a rough uh, deal for a long time. They've got a history of just bad shit happening to them constantly. It's it's not very good. Um, and in fact, let's just let's dive into this. So we're only going to go back to about the 1500s. Uh, the area that's now known as North and South Sudan was once an Islamic kingdom uh, from around the 1500s to the 1820s. And ironically enough, this is probably one of the more peaceful times in Sudanese history. Their recent history has been rife with just bullshit after bullshit. Um, in 1821, the Ottoman Empire, which was the uh, successor to the Byzantine Empire, which in and of itself was a successor to the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, the Ottomans decided to invade uh, Sudan uh, through their Egyptian province. If you look at a map, you'll see that Egypt actually is the northern border to Sudan. Egypt will be a bit of a player in this story for a little while. So Egypt slash the Ottoman Empire decides that, you know what, they want another chunk of act for Africa, so they're going to invade Sudan and they're going to they're gonna add it to the, to the Ottoman Empire. Now, of course, the Ottomans uh, were being a little frugal, so they told their soldiers to keep costs low. They were going to have to live off the land and figure out a way to fund their military expedition internally. So what ended up happening is the soldiers rolled into the Sudan, they took it over, and then they imposed their own set of taxes separate from the Ottoman taxes. They imposed their own, uh, well, what we would call theft of property, where they would just take food or take anything they needed. They would assume control of homes. I mean, it was, it was kind of a shit deal. Uh, at any rate, the Sudanese people were kind of tired of this, didn't really like it, demanded better protection from their Ottoman overlords in Egypt and from the sultan in Constantinople. And um, so the sultan ordered them to install law and order in the Sudan, which basically led to an incredibly burdensome labyrinth of bureaucracy. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bureaucrats and administrators were brought in to enforce rules and, uh, you know, put proper taxes in place and do all those sorts of things. And it really just tried to fix the situation by going the complete opposite direction. All right. Meanwhile, the uh, Ottoman administrators decided that obviously what Sudan really needed was the Ottoman style of Islam. You know, these guys are using a sort of orthodoxy backwards version. And we, we need to build mosques and bring our version in and we need to give them lots of rules and regulations, and that'll make everybody in the Sudan happy. So they start bringing in Ottoman Islamic law. They start bringing in a variety of other different things. And this really doesn't go terribly well. The locals aren't exactly thrilled with it. So around the time all this is happening, Egypt uh, gets a new provincial governor. And Egypt decides, you know what? Yeah, we're part of the Ottoman Empire, but we're also kind of awesome because we're Egypt. So we're going to start doing our own thing with less and less oversight from the imperial government. So Egypt starts uh, negotiating their own treaties with other countries. They start to uh, work on building the Suez Canal. They even invade other provinces of the Ottoman Empire, of which they're a member, and start just plundering it and taking shit and doing their own thing. Now, the Ottoman Empire was in a bit of a state of decline at this point, and the sultan didn't really have the political power to do anything about this. So you basically just had this rogue Egyptian province acting like it was its own country, 
you know, tacitly waving the Ottoman flag, but not actually adhering to uh, to the rest of the empire. So this this proved a bit problematic. Uh, but there was, you know, basically Jack the the Sultan could do about it. Well, naturally, the uh, the British saw an opportunity, and you got to love the British Empire of the uh, the seventeen and eighteen hundreds. Man, they they were business minded. They were out there just looking for opportunities to wheel and deal and and stick their flag in anything, uh, among other things. So the Brits see the Suez Canal project, and they go, man. Yeah, lads, we could have a bit of that. A direct link between the Mediterranean and uh, a straight shot passage all the way to India, which was you know a major, uh, major colony for the British Empire at the time. Oh, yeah, the Brits were all about having some of that. So the Brits roll into town to this rogue governor, and they say, listen, you've racked up a lot of debt with all your crazy behavior. The imperial treasury in Constantinople is not really funding you. What if the British Empire kind of stepped in and gave you a little bit of money? You let us put some advisors around you. You let us get some some people appointed to the, the provincial government here. And, um, yeah, we'll help you out with your debt. And I'll tell you what else we're going to do. We're nice guys. Nice guys. We're going to do this for you. We're going to take over the Suez Canal project. We're going to pay for it. We're going to finish it out. You kind of ran out of money. You stalled it out. You let us have an owning stake in the Suez Canal Company, and we're going to finish it out for you, and it's going to be just fine. Yeah, wonder what their possible motivation for that could have been. So anyway, they pay off the debts of this rogue uh, province. They uh, take over ownership of the Suez Canal and work on getting that built. And um, they install some of their own people as administrators in the Ottoman government of Egypt, which continues to still basically operate like a separate government. Hell, they didn't even have legal authority to sign over control of the Suez Canal project because that was technically an imperial Ottoman project. Uh, but, you know, the British just kind of were like, ah, it's fine. It's ours now. Um, you know, the British Empire in its day was very sticky fingered like that. I mean, just go to the British Museum. It's the largest collection of shit that doesn't belong to somebody in the world. Um, all right. So by 18. 18- 69, the British Empire uh, was extremely invested in the situation there, and the Suez Canal opened up, and it was a big windfall for the Brits, and it was going really, really well for them. They had a lot of trade going through to uh, to India and back to good old England, and the situation seemed to be doing uh, more or less just fine. Um, and, you know, Egypt was still just sort of defying control of the Ottomans, but the Ottomans couldn't do anything about it. Well, by 1881, either through neglect or downright mismanagement, the Sudanese provinces started an open revolt. Again, uh, Egyptian-slash-Ottoman rule had been very lackluster down there, and it was becoming even more so because with the British intervention, they didn't see the Sudan as all that important. After all, the Suez Canal is what they really cared about, and making sure the coastline on the Red Sea was safe for their votes to, to jet through the region. They really didn't care what was happening in Sudan, and so... Again, the occupying Ottoman forces were just kind of pillaging and plundering as they saw fit, and it was a pretty lawless place. So yeah, Sudan hasn't really had a good time of it under uh, Ottoman rule. Needless to say, by 1881, a religious and political movement erupts around a Muhammad Ahmad, who declares himself the Mahdi. The Mahdi is an Islamic messianic figure who is charged by God to rid the world of evil and herald end 
the end times. Basically, it's the philosophy of 19, it's the 1800s philosophy equivalent of Ronald Reagan, who was convinced he was heralding in the end times and his job was to rid the world of evil and communism. Um, <clears throat> so you got this Mahdi guy who has come up, he's gotten blessed by the church as this, um, this religious figure, and he's convinced that uh, things are so bad in the Sudan that the world must be approaching the end times, and he has to purify the world to to prepare the way for the end times. That's what he's doing. So he starts a massive series of uprisings across the Sudan. And um, the Ottoman governor in the Sudan, uh, when he heard that there was a desert cleric who declared himself the Mahdi, he decided the best way to solve the problem was to offer the Mahdi a government job and a pension uh, in exchange for, you know, just instead of whipping everybody up into, into a revolt where they're attacking their Ottoman overlords, I'll just pay you some money. I'll make you a government worker and you can be, you know, the, the government licensed Mahdi and you can tell everyone that the Ottomans are great and everything's fine. Well, the Mahdi uh, replied back with a telegram saying those who do not believe will be purified by the sword. Well, that tells you right where his head's at. So, Thus began the Mahdi War, which would last from 1881 to 1885. Now, the British were more concerned about keeping Egypt stable, what with the Suez Canal and all. And when a revolt started in the stand, the British Foreign Secretary Earl Grantville declared, Her Majesty's government has and is in no way responsible for operations in the Sudan. And that was it. The Brits didn't give a shit. Yes, they more or less... Um, controlled this Egyptian province, which included the Sudan, but they didn't give a shit about the Sudan because there's no canal there. There's no money to be made. It's nothing for the the might of the British Empire to to get anything out of it. So this war is carrying on, and by 1883, it was becoming increasingly apparent to the British administrators in Egypt that the Mahdi revolt was growing in size and strength, and this was a bit more of a serious problem that London wasn't really acknowledging. So they reached out to London. London said that they were not going to authorize sending in the actual British army. But if the local administrators were really concerned that this was a threat, then the the imperial British government would authorize them to use an army of locals to go and put down this rabble in the desert. So 12 British Reserve Army officers were tasked to build an army. So they drafted an army of 8,300 local Egyptians and Sudanese who were conscripted into the army, issued weapons, given no training, and then marched through the desert to go fight the Mahdi and the Sudan. Now, fun fact, that at this time, uh, Winston Churchill, who would later be the famous prime minister of uh, Britain during World War II, was actually in the British Army, and he would serve in the Sudanese campaign as a member of the 21st Lancers, although he doesn't arrive in the Sudan until a little later. Churchill actually wrote about the Sudan campaigns quite extensively. He had a lot of opinions on it since he, he served in the army on the ground in this conflict. And Churchill was quoted as saying that this 8,000-man army that they cobbled together was, quote, perhaps the worst army that has ever marched to war. Unpaid, untrained, and undisciplined, its soldiers have more in common with their enemies than their officers. And that's accurate. So this British-Egyptian-Sudanese cobbled-together force wanders off into the desert to go find the Mahdi, and they do. They find a Mahdi army of 40,000 men, and the British commanders rather foolishly decide to engage them at the Battle of El Abed. 
Now, of the 8,300, only 500 men survived, and those 500 that survived, pretty much all of them, except for the officers who fled, defected and joined the Mahdi forces. Again, they had more in common with the Mahdi than not. And um, yeah, talk about a terrible loss. That was a big, hairy deal. Now, in London, the British government under Prime Minister Gladstone decided that any real war in the Sudan was pointless. Uh, they didn't really care about it. Egyptian uh, Egypt was all that they were really interested in. So they decided that the decision here was to evacuate the Sudan um, and leave it under the control of the Mahdi and just let them be their own country. We'll, we'll keep Egypt. Sudan can wander off and have its little religious messiah figure and do whatever. We don't really give a shit. Um, so in London, they order um, General Charles Chinese Gordon to oversee the withdrawal of British and Egyptian forces and civilians from the colony in Sudan. Now, Gordon gained fame and his nickname from leading British and Chinese forces to victory during the Taiping Rebellion in China. Uh, He was, however, known to be a highly aggressive and highly confrontational individual, and some people suggested that perhaps he wasn't the guy to go and send a you know, to do an orderly evacuation that he might be more inclined to go and, and, you know, pick a fight with these guys, which is pretty much what happened. So Gordon goes, uh, sails a contingent of the British army down to the Sudan. He arrives at the Sudanese capital of Khartoum. And um, once he's there, he takes a look around at the situation and he decides on the spot that the Mahdi was much too dangerous to be allowed to live. He was too dangerous to be given control of the country, and that even though his orders were for an evacuation, London did not understand the existential threat that the Mahdi represented to the world. And by God, General Gordon was going to solve this problem. So, even though his orders were to oversee a swift and efficient evacuation of British and Egyptian forces, he decided to hold up in the capital city of Khartoum, uh, amass a few million rounds of ammunition, refortify the walls, hoard food, and prepare his army to draw out the Mahdi's forces um, and engage them. And he was going to decisively defeat the Mahdi and put an end to this. And the British and the Egyptians would get to keep the Sudan, and you know he'd be you know a war hero times two. Well. Regardless of whatever the actual thought of Gordon was in this time, effectively, you know, one of the running theories is because he kind of just sort of held up in the city and waited for the Mahdi to come to him. And one of the running theories is that Gordon assumed the Mahdi forces were way less organized and way smaller than what they ended up being. And he figured that if he sort of made it look like he was just sort of hiding out in the city, the Mahdi's army would come to him, and then he would roll out there with his superior trained and capable force, mow him down, kill the Mahdi, and that would be that. But they would come to him because it would look like he was in a weaker position, taking a defensive position, and then he could just charge out and and whack him. Uh, Didn't really work that way. So Gordon's force was only about 7,000 strong, about half British soldiers and about half um, uh, Egyptian uh, provincial soldiers from up north. And the Mahdi rolled up to Khartoum with nearly 100,000 jihadis. Yeah, being outnumbered more than 10 to 1 is not great odds in most fights. Most most soldiers don't exactly look for that as the, uh, the way they want to go into it. Now... The city is put under siege. Gordon can't go out there and directly engage them because they are wildly outnumbered. And 
the Mahdi forces were actually much more organized and disciplined than Gordon had expected. He thought he was going to face sort of like Chinese rebels like he was used to that were extremely disorganized, a gaggle of people with pitchforks and and all of that. And these guys came out with fairly modern weapons. They had been training. You know, He was not going out there and having a, a fight where he was going to have the advantage in any sense of the word. After a couple of months, he sent calls to London for help, saying that the situation was dire, and so dire, in fact, that he eventually went to the Mahdi and tried to negotiate a surrender um, because he knew he was beaten. But the Mahdi refused and said that their plan was to take the city, and he could surrender it or not. But regardless, they were taking the city, and they were going to kill everyone. That was it. That was it. So Gordon obviously bunkered down... uh, Batten down the hatches, bunkered down, and decided, okay, well, if they're going to kill us anyways, we may as well hold out as long as we can and hope that reinforcements come from London. Well, word reaches London that their war hero and superstar, General Gordon, is under siege and about to be overrun by Sudanese rebels, and there was a massive public outcry. Uh, The people were horrified that this would happen to one of their great generals. Prime Minister Gladstone refused to send help, saying that this was stupid that Gordon had probably gone out and started this fight himself or let himself get into the situation. And he had orders to do an evacuation, not pick a fight. Um, Gladstone's position was this was going to be very expensive and there was nothing to be gained by fighting in the sedan. I mean, Gladstone's position was actually pretty reasonable from a big picture standpoint. I mean, you know, he's like, it's stupid. Why, why are we going to the sedan? That why, why the fuck would we do that? Um, But the British public was outraged, and even Queen Victoria herself berated Gladstone and basically told him to get his shit together and go help Gordon. So eventually, the prime minister relented, and he ordered a relief force to be sent out. Now, while all of this public uproar is happening and parliament's debating on things and Queen Victoria's getting her knickers in a twist, uh, the city of Khartoum is under full-on siege, and the siege lasts for 313 days before the city is finally overrun. Gordon himself is killed, his head is chopped off and mounted over the city gates, and um, the British army is basically wiped out to the man. The relief forces from London arrive two days after the city fell. They arrived on day 315, and if they'd gotten there three days earlier, Gordon and his force might have been saved, but alas, he was not. They arrived, they saw the situation, they saw there was nothing to be done, and so they turned around, got back on the ships, and sailed the hell out of there and said, well, we gave it the good old college try. Sorry about that. So, by 1885, this leaves the Mahdi in control of um, the Sudan, and that's that. Now, the Mahdi convinces his people that this victory was the beginning of basically the the, you know, for lack of a better term, the tribulation. It's the beginning of the the fight of the armies of God against um, the forces of darkness and that soon the Messiah would return and all of these things. <clears throat> and so all of his people are whipped up into this fervor that, that the last battle, the beginning of the last battle has just started in the Sudan and this is going to spread across the globe and all of this. Um, and yeah, that's, that's absolutely what was going to happen except for the fact that the Mahdi dropped dead of, I think, natural causes six months later. As a result, the Mahdi movement broke up into a series of rival factions and a series of brutal civil wars that would last for um, 11 years, basically. And um, yeah, pretty much just tear what was left of the country apart. 
1896, the British had decided that they were still kind of salty about losing their war hero, Gordon, and thousands of their soldiers to those fucking primitive religious zealots, and it was time to do something about it. So they wrestled together a contingent of the British Army, 9,000 soldiers equipped with um, the best and shiniest and most awesome Gatling guns and machine guns that money could buy, and they were given orders to retake the sedan. One example of this is actually the Battle of Omdurman, which is a prime example of how technology changed things. 8,200 British soldiers marched against 52,000 Mahdi forces, the British lost 48 men, and the Sudanese lost 12,000 men, two waves and waves of machine gun fire. Needless to say, by 1899, the British had officially retaken control of the Sudan, and things were going to return to normal. Well, in so much as normal can be said. Now, this is probably the last significant period of peace the Sudan is going to encounter. Uh, the British ruled it as a crown colony effectively from 1899 to 1956. And barring some stuff in World War II with Mussolini trying to take the area over, the place was more or less about as stable as it's ever been for a couple of centuries at this point. Well, by the mid-1950s, the war is over, the World War II, that is, and the British Empire is being dismantled. Sensing that the Sudanese want their independence and not really interested in another long, drawn-out conflict in foreign lands, the British decide to hold an election. Uh, a democratic parliament of the locals is formed, and they declare Sudan an independent nation in 1956, the Republic of Sudan. Happy ending, right? Of course not. Within two years, 1958, <clears throat> Sudanese General Abraham Abode decides that democracy is stupid, and he seizes control of the government. He disbands parliament, he installs a Supreme Council of the Armed Forces to rule, and he takes all the civilians out of any decision-making positions. Now, this didn't last for very long. After about six years, he was in turn overthrown by a revolution of disenfranchised college students who really wanted democracy, and they put a transitional democratic system in control. The problem is, of course, they have no experience with democracy. Parties start forming immediately. There's infighting between parties, which eventually leads to um, actual conflict. And in 1969, only five years later, the military exerts yet another coup d'etat, assumes control of the government, disbands parliament again, and declares the Democratic Republic of Sudan. Now, the military only managed to hold things fairly stably for about two years before, in 1971, the communists are – sorry about that. Phone just went off in, in a show there. We got that cut off. But yeah, 1971, the communist forces seize control of the country because it's downright bullshit that all these revolutions are happening in the Sudan and not a single one of them so far has been a Marxist revolution. So the communists seized control of the country in 1971, and they managed to hold power for a whopping seven days before the military reorganizes and topples the communists again, um, giving the military control of the country for what, the third time at this point? So this all kind of 
continues on for another several years. And in 1985, Colonel al-Bashir leads a coup d'etat, seizing control of the government and turning it into an Islamic republic. Laws are rewritten to be based on Islamic legal code. Political parties are suspended. Religious loyalty purges and executions are instituted in the military, the government, and the newspapers. And uh, this results in the Second Sudanese Civil War between Bashir's government and pretty much everybody else that doesn't fucking like him. Uh, which will run from 1983 to 2005, 22 years, and would actually have the highest civilian death toll of any war since World War II. Now, that all seems pretty bad, and we have all heard about the genocide in Darfur, which happened during the Sudanese Civil War, and we all know these are not good things. But Bashir does decide he's going to make a move towards democracy, and 1996, he decides that he's going to allow elections for the office of president. However, it is illegal for anyone to run for or be elected for president except for him. Democracy. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I do believe that maybe he didn't have a very strong grasp of the, the, the democratic process, if I'm being honest. At any rate, in 19, in the 1990s, uh, Bashir invites Osama bin Laden to come set up shop and operations in the Sudan, which results in the country being listed as a state sponsor for terrorism by the United States. Um, eventually, Osama bin Laden would move his forces to Afghanistan because Osama really liked just drifting from one uh, shitbird country to the next. Um, and so, yeah, you know, he, he loved his despotic leaders. That's where he liked to be. At any rate, uh, after... A number of years in 2005, the UN, because they're always Johnny on the spot, decides that they need to get involved and try and put an end to the fighting in the Sudan. Ultimately, by 2011, this leads to an arrangement for um, the southern third of the Sudan to secede and be called South Sudan. And um, they're going to share the proceeds of the Sudanese oil fields. And yes, see, there is an energy tie-in here, right? So... The southern part of Sudan has considerable oil field. Um, I don't know why I've lost my word there. Consider considerable assets of oil that could be explored. And, you know, naturally, this has um, not really been explored nearly as well as it could have been, considering all the infighting and everything. And with the south getting the majority of the oil fields, this was a bit of a problem. But they, they negotiate a a profit-sharing scheme, not unlike what Yemen did um, when they had their split off. And um, also, there's a big pipeline going from the South Sudan oil fields to the coast in Sudan proper, where the oil can be sold. And so that's kind of the situation there. <clears throat> now, Bashir's still in charge of Sudan proper, and um, he manages to hold power until about 2019, when various factions and armed forces and civilians and militia groups rose up and overthrew Bashir, and promised both the citizenry and the world they were going to return to being a proper democratic government. So now we know the story has a happy ending, except it doesn't because two years later in 2021, the military backed by and supplied from the Russian Federation leads General al Burhan to take control of the government and disband the civilian officials, insisting that they didn't know what they were doing and that only he has the answer, him and the military, on how to create a uh, civil government in Sudan, which is an amazing bit of mental gymnastics. 
Alberhan declares that his intentions are to form an alliance with Russia, maintain military control of the country, and at a time that he feels is appropriate, hand over control to the civilians once he feels they're properly prepared for that. Um, one of the interesting things they did was work with the RSF. Now, that stands for the Rapid Support Forces. So the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, is basically a paramilitary militia group who were Bashir, loyal Bashir loyalists. Um, one of the things that Bashir always had fear of, because he had watched it happen 5,000 times in Sudan's history, <clears throat> was that the military, which ostensibly were loyal to him and helped put him in power, that they would betray him. Because God knows, in the 30 minutes we've been in this podcast, there have been about 5,872 different military coups in Sudan. Hell, there's probably been 15 military coups in Sudan since this episode has been on, and we're already in the middle of one. At any rate, he decides that he needs a separate military force that is going to be loyal to him personally to keep an eye on the military and prevent them from ever taking out a power. So he creates the um, RSF, which is from a group of extremely violent and dangerous militia groups um, that had fought during the Civil War, and they were all supposed to be loyal to him and all this. Well, after Bashir is overthrown, ironically, by the military, which the RSF didn't stop, there's now the army and the civilian faction. And now there's this RSF, which is a fully armed and operational military force of its own, separate from the government. So in order to try and maintain some degree of power, the military commanders of, um, of Sudan decide that they are going to hire the RSF and bring them in in sort of a power sharing arrangement. Um, and they are brought in and hired to help enforce law and order and also to look for any pro-Bashir people and take them out, which is ironic because they were built and selected on the premise that they were personally loyal to Bashir. Now, that's just irony. Um, it's unclear to date what sparked the most recent round of fighting, but on April 15th, 2023, just a couple of days ago as of this recording, the military government declared that the RSF was a renegade military force and attempted to arrest its members. The RSF, on the other hand, mobilized its forces and began seizing control of parts of the country and parts of the capital, resulting in, at least at the time of this podcast, at least 200 dead in Khartoum, and power and water to the city has been cut off. Now, this is an interesting situation. One, there's an oil play. Sudan is technically a member of OPEC. <clears throat> um, these are, well, OPEC plus anyway. So these are some interesting uh, situations brewing. I mean, on the one hand, Sudan has nothing if not a history of violence and terrible things happening. Um, and I don't know of anybody that actually thought that this time the transition in a new government and civilian would would go particularly well. On the other hand, seeing as how they do export a lot of oil to China and um, Russia has propped up at least one part of this civil war, it does beg the question, what is China's reaction going to be? Uh, one, is this going to cause any kind of an impact to China since one of their oil producers is, is in the middle of a civil war? The presumption is that at some point there's going to be an impact. I mean, as of the recording of this podcast, the pipeline is still producing. Uh, oil is still flowing out of the country for now. But at some point, as this conflict starts to gear up, it's very likely the pipeline or the ports or any number of other things is going to grind to a halt, not unlike what we've seen across the bay in Yemen. So the, the other question is, 
if this does affect China, what is their response? Russia has been supplying, uh, honestly, both sides of this. They've supplied um, the Wagner Group, has supplied the RSF, the Russian military proper has actually supplied parts of the uh, standing Sudanese military. And so uh, it's a very weird situation with Russia kind of halfway being involved in this most recent round of fighting in a sort of second or third order way. Will that cause any issues with them in China? My suspicion is probably not. My guess is with the fighting breaking out, Russia will kind of back off a little bit. And let's face it, they've got way more things going on than they really know what to do with right now with the Ukraine. But if China does run into a little bit of a uh, energy shortage, which we know there are, you know, I mean, that was, gosh, last week we talked about that was one of the big crises of the world is an overall energy shortage. How is that going to impact? I mean, I think that's, going to be quite interesting to watch. The real question is going to be how much further this fighting in Khartoum and the Sudan spreads. And at what point, if at all, it actually starts to evolve South Sudan, which has so far managed to maintain its independence, sell its oil, and generally not be involved in this round of fighting. But at any rate, that's where we're at today. That is what's happened. It's breaking news. And so much as you uh, ever get breaking news on a podcast, it's uh, about a week delayed from recording to going live. Um, yeah, there we are. Bottom line, Sedan has had a rough go. If there is anything to be learned from this, uh, just assume there's always going to be a civil war and there's always going to be a coup d'etat. Anyway, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I'm still the host until somebody overthrows me. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.